So I guess to, to start with, what I'd like to do maybe just set a context for a larger scheme of where we are and what's been going on in the world and um, maybe then focus in on some structures and what we can do about things uh, later on. So I guess yeah. some of the, uh, the common concepts and broad outlines that uh, I guess you'll know a bit about uh, things like uh, energy. Um, yeah. I know you've talked quite a bit about energy. What's your, what's your sort of your building blocks and your thoughts on energy? Well, I think permaculture emerged out of a response to the first and second energy crisis. The work that Bill Molson and I did in the mid-70s was bracketed between the 73 energy crisis, the oil crisis, and the, and the 79 one. Permaculture one was published in 78. There was a huge interest in what we would call today sustainable alternatives and a lot of that was galvanized around the the oil crises and then we had the sort of sleeping decades of the 80s and the 90s and then we've hit both peak oil and climate change in the new millennium and it's all all those issues are back you know on the agenda again obviously in slightly different ways and with different emphasis to what it was back then but from that beginning, it was clear that uh, fossil fuels being uh, non-renewable, the transition back to renewable energy with multiple billions of people on the planet was going to be problematic. And that energy underpinned every past civilization. It actually underpins the way every hunter-gatherer society works, maybe not in the way of fuels to burn so much but fuel that we put in our bodies and that it actually underpins every natural ecosystem so the work of Howard Odom systems ecologist who analyzed ecosystems and human systems in terms of energy flow and storage was central to those ideas if we look more recently in my book principles and pathways beyond sustainability which was published in 2002 I characterised permaculture as being the adaptive design for the energy descent future, a future where there will be less and less energy available to each generation into the future for a long time. So this is, of course, the opposite of the normal view of the future, which I call techno-explosion, where there's an increase in energy and therefore an increase in societal complexity technology you know the trip to the stars you know to gather more resources all all of that sort of future which you know people like i you know myself growing up in the 50s and 60s were subject to as you know propaganda through children's magazines that i would have holidays to mars and all of that sort of thing so uh this discourse about energy futures is not just about fuel we put in cars or, or power stations. It's actually about what the underpinning of human existence is. So I think that issue of is energy, well, when we get down to this, analysing it in science terms, net energy available to support humanity, is that going up or going down? And really, the super accelerated rise from the end of the Second World War up to the first energy crisis in 73, we've really been on a bumpy rising, gently rising plateau since then. It hasn't been the accelerated rise that numbers like GDP 
suggest. It's actually been quite problematic. And now we're arguably tipping over into uh, a net energy decline, especially per person on the planet. So that means a whole lot of the assumptions about energy, including a lot of the renewable technology optimists that and the mainstream climate activism, which is sort of saying, oh, yes, we can just do this seamless transition to renewable technology and don't need to change the way we live particularly um, and don't need to change sort of more fundamental things like, oh, how's food produced? Permaculture's always been based on food is absolutely central to the sustainability question and what underpins that is energy and net energy. So... I think that big picture understanding is really important. The next aspect of it is peak oil of conventional oil, the really good high net energy return oil has already happened. We can't say exactly when it happened because the numbers on what constitutes conventional oil are not consistently measured or in the world but it happened somewhere around 2005 or, or or possibly earlier even stuff that we call not just conventional oil but anything that can actually be sold into the world market as oil has really looks like it's peaked what's growing very slowly is just total liquids <laughs> which is a bit fudgy it's like the numbers on economic growth and employment all of these things are being massaged to make it uh, look good so the GFC was actually one of the symptoms of that process the breakdown in North Africa and the Middle East is another one of those symptoms and the the renewal of the, the, the Cold War in Eastern Europe centred on the Ukraine is another one of those symptoms. So although we can look at all the different explanations for those particular events, they are all actually connected with a, a reduction in the net energy base to society. Um, maybe they're not playing out exactly the way some of the sort of people peak oil activists thought they would and they're also symptomatic of the instability of climate that we're getting the impacts on agriculture the impacts on infrastructure so we're in that great crisis that the club of rome limits to growth report back in 1972 said we were heading for um it seems to be fairly on on track <laughs> <laughs> So uh, ecology and life and just the patterns of life in the world, um, yeah, uh, got any thoughts on that? that? Well, again, permaculture looked at industrial systems and said we've developed novel ways of doing things that appear to be different from nature, but that is largely an illusion when you look at it in the energy analysis. In nature, systems that have rich and concentrated sources of energy have a lot of structural things that are similar to modern systems. When energy is normally low and constrained, nature is dominated by cooperative relationships, 
slow, gradual change, steady state um, ecologies, climax ecologies. Uh, so when there is um, a decline in energy base, there can be collapse of systems and then restabilizations. So we look at natural systems and understand their patterns as the design rules for permaculture and recognizing that most of the time in nature and most of the time in human history, uh, the design of systems uh, doesn't work at high speed and moving large amounts of materials from one place to another like we do. In nature, things are mostly place located and a limited number of species move over large distances and at high speed. Um, that, that the relationships are more cooperative than competitive, that diversity uh, rather than monoculture is the characteristic pattern of nature and the characteristic pattern in human systems like traditional uh, pre-industrial agricultural systems uh, were had a diversity of crops. You didn't just grow one thing, partly because you're going, growing for people to eat and people want to eat a diversity, whereas modern agriculture is focused on the market and then the market will do the diversity thing. But that is in, inherently requires more energy. So permaculture always goes back to natural systems as a, a reference point for design principles. And uh, we, we can see that we've got to relearn a lot of those. And there's been attempts at doing this in the modern world, not just since permaculture, but going back to earlier waves of modern ecological thinking back in the 1930s with the rise of the organic movement and even back into the 1880s, 1890s, where people started questioning the industrial model and uh, for both um, ethical reasons and environmental reasons. So we see that looking at nature as a model is part of a lineage of thinking in the modern world that, you know, permaculture is, is very much part of that. Cool. And how does technology sort of fit into that and sort of the appropriateness of certain technologies? How would you gauge that? Well, of course, the appropriate technology movement, if you like, or concept in the 1970s was a parallel one to permaculture. And in fact, um, uh, it's been associated with the, the technological aspects and permaculture has been associated with the biological aspects. But in fact, both concepts were sort of seeing it's all related and, and connected so uh, I think the problem with a lot of modern technology is it's pushing the economies of very large scale, uh, both in research and development, uh, design and then manufacturing and large scale application. That has some still useful spin-offs to run <laughs> into the future and we can look at things like photovoltaic panels as a a sort of a product of that and then sort of a templated technology that can be used all over the place. But a lot of 
the useful technologies uh, that are emerging are not actually that type of technology. They're actually going back to old, simple ideas and maybe using a little bit of what Peter Harper at the Centre for Alternative Technology Centre says, uh, we just we do natural building, we just use a little bit of industrial vitamins. <laughs> you know, whether it's, uh, you know, different material science, uh, um, uh, plastics, things like silicon mastic, things like stainless steel. There's so much stainless steel in the world that we can make things from, even that's just reusing things without making more stainless steel. We probably don't need to even make more stainless steel and aluminium maybe forever because there's so much of it already in the world but the creative reuse remanufacturing uh, there's a whole uh, uh, movement around open source technology that started with information technology but is moving to things like can there be these uh, generic tractor power plant designs that you can put different items onto and build up in a way that can be manufactured in small local workshops uh, using sort of very generic, simple technology. So I think there's a, a strong potential in, if you like, a very mild but important another technological revolution that can be part of the, the uh, move towards that, what I'd call an ecotechnic society, you know, that's based on biological solutions more. With a nice high-tech smithy in the village. Yeah, I- exactly. This, this ability to, um, yeah, hybridise what we have out of modern technology with uh, si- the simple, local, accessible, I think, is the, is the key things. Mm. So how about, uh, how about knowledge? Do you consider knowledge as a technology or...? Well, we would see that knowledge is important, but the way you apply what we already have through design is like a fundamental new literacy. It's like reading and writing. And design has been around, like reading and writing, not as long as reading and writing, in a conscious sense of design, we can see design in nature, we can see the emergent design in traditional sustainable cultures. But the idea that we just look at a situation and take elements and put them together in a conscious design sense is a fairly modern concept. And we mostly associate it with buildings and you know, the design professions. Whereas permaculture said, oh, we can apply design to agriculture. Whereas traditional agriculturalists said, well, agriculture is about husbandry and, and management, but design, what's design got to do with it? I think now it's possible to see that there's been a, like a whole design revolution going on that permaculture has been a part of. So that is the way we synthesise and use knowledge, apply knowledge, is more important than the just greater accumulation. The, the next level of knowledge that's very important to understand is the distinction between reductionist thinking that simplifies things down to fundamental constituents and, and, and works best with specialisation and holistic understandings that can see broad patterns that works best with generalist understandings. 
And those two sides of human knowledge have got really out of whack because in the last few hundred years, reductionist science has been so powerful and so effective, it's rewritten all our education systems and created a whole society of specialists. Meanwhile, the generalist side, the whole system thinking side, has become atrophied. So the productive point of working on knowledge is not more specialist knowledge. It's actually synthesis rather than analysis. It's how you put it all together and how you not just build the building blocks together, but how you stand back from it and see it as big picture first and then go down into the details. So the permaculture principle of design from patterns to details teaches us to sort of reverse that thinking that we've been educated into, that you find about all the little building blocks and then you try and get functional complexity by chucking them all together. You know, whereas systems, one of the, uh, the characteristics of systems thinking is that, it's, uh, is that it says complex systems that work evolve from simple systems that work. So you've got a whole system that functions first and then it grows in complexity. You don't assemble a complex system from scratch. It almost never, ever works. You know, so, yeah, knowledge is a very big part of it. The other way of linking that back to energy is to say, oh, optimistically, knowledge and design allows us to do things and overcome the limits of energy. It doesn't really, because knowledge and design is actually a distillation of past energy and wealth in society. So what permaculture is trying to do is say, can we use that knowledge to better design these sustainable systems, even if 500 years into the future, the level of creative designability will inevitably declined back to just copy what grandfather did, it works. <laughs> you know, so that that power of human creativity is a, a great and durable resource from the modern era of fossil fuels, from surplus wealth. But it's not endlessly renewable. It's like any resource, it, de- it can deplete over time. But it's enormously more durable than the fuel we are burning in our furnaces or the roads, the highways we've built for cars to run on or any of the other so-called long-lived infrastructure. Knowledge and designability can, can be passed on, you know, with depletion, with what the, you know, the accountants call depreciation, <laughs> you know, the whisper effect. Yeah. <laughs> um, and acknowledging that R&D learning is expensive. You know, it does actually take time and to make mistakes and all that sort of stuff that's an incredibly important part of innovation. But permaculture absolutely relies on that. Right. Now, the economy itself, I suppose there are a few different levels of economy. What's, uh, what's your take on and or the economy? Well, the first, I think, most important perspective is that in most societies before very recent times, most economic activity uh, actually occurred outside the monetary economy. 
in what we what I call the household and community economies. So the household was the basic unit of society and the basic unit of the economy. So food is grown, uh, houses are built, uh, basic provision of need happens within a family unit, health, basic health care, basic education, all of those things until quite recently, the vast majority of it happened outside the monetary economy. The monetary economy was sort of like the icing on the cake for doing the extra things. And then what we've grown to is a situation where more and more complex functions can be performed and they need to be in need the support of not just the monetary economy but then advanced finance and all the complexities of the financial economy of banking but the other way that monetary economy has grown is by sucking dry the household and community economies so a quite controversial example might be the movement of women out of the household economy into the workplace, <coughs> into paid work, although perceived as this great um, uh, you know, liberation of women, it was supported by the system because it actually grew the, the monetary economy. I don't count that as economic growth because you've just shifted an activity from one economy into another economy. Now, when you have a high energy base, it is sometimes more efficient to do things in the monetary economy. You know, people who do things for a profession are generally better at it than people who do it as amateurs at home, whether it's growing food or building a house or, or educating the kids, you know, or looking after health. But the cost, the energy cost of those centralised monetary economic systems is very, very high. And in a lower energy society, what will happen, and we know from every economic downturn in modern history, happens when the monetary economy goes down, the household and community economies start to flourish again. And that's what's happening right across Europe now as the monetary economy is like really down. People are growing food again. People are doing things for themselves. And you do things for yourself like growing food uh, in preference to manufacturing antibiotics because <laughs> it's obvious not that you are the most efficient food producer in the country, but because you can do it. Whereas you can't manufacture the antibiotics so you get the, you allocate what monetary resources you have to things like that. So the rebooting of the household and community economies in places that have been long affluent and rich like Australia is incredibly important part of economic growth. It's the most important part. Then there's that sort of crossover between where the householding community economies can grow up, if you like, and turn into doing some of the more complex functions that you can't do at, with barter and just at a, a sort of a household level. And I think a lot of the um, other models than business model, um, certainly business models that use cooperative structures of ownership um, and small business, uh, owner-operated businesses are actually the cutting edge 
whereas the corporate world will continue to pursue those economies of scale, of centralisation, of global financing, and will continue to try and suck resources into that, it will fail of its own accord just due to energetics. But in the process, it'll try and bleed every other system and parasitize every other system. So I don't, I don't believe in trying to reform that. The thing is to build the parallel economy and the priority from a permaculture system is start at the kindergarten level in the household economy while recognising we also need to be sort of trying to, when we get a little bit past that, to build some of the, the next levels in uh, through cooperative business structures and uh, larger things that can't be so easily done at the household level. Cool. Now, I'm going to ask you a question now that I've picked up off uh, a pair who travelled around the United States doing interviews like this, and um, Micah Saul and uh, Angus Anderson, I think, but uh, they like to ask people, what is the good? What's What's all this about? What are you? What is it? The thing that you really are treasuring and are trying to preserve and and, and mm. maintain with with what you're doing with your life. Well, I think that gets down to um, uh, in permaculture teaching the idea of what underpins permaculture as a, if you like, a knowledge or design technology uh, with its basic design principles is the foundation that's even more fundamental to that is the ethics of care of the earth, care of people and fair share. So that those are even more fundamental concepts than the design principles, but of course they don't give you any answers as to exactly what to do where. They're just questions in a way. But that idea of care of the earth, uh, I tend to interpret that as not... um, a steering spaceship Earth in a sustainable direction, but more uh, back to a grounded level of the care of the soil under our feet, that that is what sustains us. So having this reference point that nature and its basic building blocks of, uh, of biodiversity, biomass, the capture of water and the capture of nutrients, that those four measures of wealth in nature are the things we need to be assisting. They are the goods. Nature's goods in her own terms, not just in what's useful to us. So that is one of the, 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 the uh, questions of um, good, uh, of, Thank you, of building nature's capital. Now, of course, that concept of capital is a, is a monetary financial concept, but it is, it is we're looking at real wealth. So sometimes uh, uh, environmentalists focus very strongly on the biodiversity aspect um, and miss the biomass aspect, that biomass is one of those measures of, of wealth in nature. Um, sometimes permaculture people get accused of being biomass junkies. You know, oh, <laughs> look at all that forest. Of, you know, and yes, it's just one of the measures. But in some ways, the more fundamental ones is everywhere, at least over the terrestrial ecosystems, the land, not so much in the oceans, they operate off a different parameter. 
but that everywhere nature is trying to catch and store water and nutrients for as long as possible. Slow the water down, spread it out, sink it in. Every ecosystem is trying to do that. Every ecosystem is trying to catch nutrients. So there are some of the measures that we can say, are we doing that? That's when we're doing good. The other good is that in care of people. And like people default to looking at how we look after the whole planet, with people, they often think, how do we look after the 7 billion people on the planet? When the starting point, especially for the billion or so middle class people on the planet, should be, how do we look after ourselves? Now, that may seem selfish, but it's actually how we reduce our footprint on the earth and leave space for other people. So it's living simply so others may simply live. And it's focusing on the care of the self, the care of kin and the care of community, because we have power to influence that. We don't actually have direct power to determine care of 7 billion people on the planet. But by taking control of that, genuinely looking after ourselves, not how many things can we acquire, but our own health, um, our own psychological uh, connection, um, our kin, our our relatives, our, our family and community. And then the third ethic is the most complicated one in a way Um, it's fair share and that's where we come to say okay when we look after ourselves and our family and even our community we know that even though we have to put in something to do that like we need to eat well and um, be fit so our um, we're healthy in old age we have to do something now for the benefit of something later. You know, we give something to people in the community, oh yeah, they will give us something back later. You know, there's a reciprocity there. It's sort of like an insurance system. But then there's another level where we give away without any expectation of reciprocity, where we can just say, this is, we have abundance. We can give that away beyond our circle of reciprocity. Now, whether that's Uh, working in some uh, help for some appropriate aid project on the other side of the world or some other way where we just, um, you know, uh, are giving away without expectation of something back. And that the other side of that is recognising the limits of the environment. So what in permaculture teaching has been the limits of consumption and the limits of reproduction that you know what can nature sustain what is fair and so that fair share concept is a way to get to that question of what is good uh, which is obviously a moral judgment that changes in time and and culture yes i think in the 50 or so um long interviews that those guys did, they never really got a particularly good answer for <laughs> what is the good. <laughs> yeah. But that was quite good. Um, now, I guess taking those things as good, though, um, what, I mean, fairly briefly, because we'll get on to more of yeah. the solutions fairly quickly, what, what are some of the, the major threats that you see that are, that are closing? I guess I'm picking on them as things that we might want to avoid doing. 
Well, I think addiction is the primary one. Um, and addiction obviously comes out of an understanding of pharmacological addiction, which has gone from being a bit of a weird concept to a way of actually understanding a lot of behaviour in the world, and not just individual behaviour, but systemic addiction. You know, like we have governments addicted to gambling revenues. And it's not just a vague metaphor, it is actually a structural positive feedback loop that keeps locking a system in to a dysfunctional point, driving it towards collapse. (laughs) But it gets a reward from that. It gets a benefit at a long-term cost. So we have everything from individual addiction to television, computers and shopping, uh, as well, of course, overlaid on all the um, uh, pharmacological and uh, addictions to sugar, coffee, (laughs) etc., etc. But then... Yes, we have this addiction to overstimulation and then these deep systemic addictions. The the addiction to oil, of course, has become an emblematic uh, one of of society. So I think that's one of the biggest threats because the trouble with the addict is they can see the problem, they know what the bad effect is, but the drive (laughs) towards the hit now is so strong that it, it, it overrides that. Yeah, interesting, interesting. I mean, you know, there's lots of other, you know, stuff going on, I suppose, that can be put down to sort of like evil politics and and power structures. But I see a lot of those as more symptomatic of a civilization that's like struggling at the decay phase, that you get a lot of corruption, you know, where the, the what is for the good of the collective and the larger whole becomes subsumed is... What can I get out of it right now? A uh, type of short-term thinking. Mm. So, I guess we've had this uh, this big splurge of energy into the human economy in the form of oil over the last couple of hundred years. Say to be quite vague, but um, what what is it that we can? That there are many many benefits that have come out of this for us. I mean. You can look at the Monty Python, what have the Romans ever done for us to get and sort of <laughs> get a bit of an idea there. But what, what do you reckon it's feasible of those critical fundamental benefits that we've got out of all of this energy use that we'll be able to salvage and, and, and keep when we've got a fairly stable sort of solar energy economy? Well, I think the first thing that often gets missed is actually the movement of plants around the world and to a lesser extent animals. That's mostly, we've had awareness of that and how much damage that's caused to indigenous ecologies, especially in countries like you know, the island continent of Australia with all its endemic species, but everywhere in the world we can see that. But what we've often ignored is how much extra power in sustaining humans has come from that. You, know, you can go to somewhere like Ethiopia or in the highlands uh, at a Sabavar, and all the fuel is because of Tasmanian blue gum and far other fast-growing Australian species of trees that had what foresters call exotic vigour. The arrival of potatoes and corn in Europe, of course, increased human carrying capacity enormously. And that project that was actually being done by the economic botanists in the 19th century, they were on a track to, this is the most important pathway in the world, What they didn't understand is oil was about to hit on top of coal and make all of that just the sideshow. 
But if we look at what's already been moved around the planet and that what we can use in a permaculture design sense to create new novel ecosystems and that nature is already doing this anyway, like 30% of the planet is what's classified as novel ecosystems of combinations of new plants and animals, that is actually one of the pathways for both stabilising degradation and building new fertility and resources that will both stabilise nature, but as a byproduct, actually be more effective at supporting humans than what some of the systems were before industrialisation. So that's one of the bright spots of what we can salvage, that unfinished project of how do we use all of the different biological resources that are available to us. And many of those resources are things that were quite rare where they came from. They were just in one place. Uh, you know, we get surprised in Australia that radiata pine is actually a threatened species in California, that tagasasti, the, the great best fodder tree of southern Australia, actually comes from one island in the Canary Islands, uh, that a lot of these things that have become common and even weedy in their abundance are actually uh, well, quite rare threatened species. Um, so that's one resource we can salvage because a lot of those things have been moved. We have to work with them anyway. For example, in the future in southeastern Australia, we will have, whether we like it or not, mixed forests of eucalypts and conifers, of radiata pine naturalising into the forests to create new ecologies. And we better start understanding what those systems are and, you know, there's both negative impacts in terms of, ooh, they, they burn well, don't they? Uh, through to, oh gee, you get these nice, straight, suppressed pine trees that instead of having crappy wood like you buy in Bunnings, have this beautiful, dense, hard, strong wood like um, Baltic pine from northern Sweden mm. because they've been grown on poor soils in amongst gum trees. In the same way. Yeah, and in the future we will have a huge amount of that type of conifer wood. Now, given that we don't actually have good quality conifer in Australia, which is why they introduced the radiata pine in the first place, and we just got the crappy fast-grown stuff, it, it's amazing that that same species actually... Um, let alone other species like Cypress macrocarpa or Californian redwood, uh, you know, we're now finding are actually growing faster here than they do in California. Um, so that project of economic botany, I think, is a big one, and it was a big part of the permaculture vision in the 1970s. It remains an important part of the project. The second one, I'd say, is the salvage economies. How to creatively reuse what we've already got so more than you know melting down smashing a glass bottle and melting it down and making another glass bottle you know the art um, uh, glass blower you know taking a glass bottle and turning it into a wine carafe is emblematic of creative reuse or modification when we think about shipping containers already have this huge use of just old shipping containers that are no longer up to standard for sea transport. When the global economy just slows down, let alone 
even does anything approaching collapse, the amount of surplus shipping containers is mind-boggling. <laughs> so the creative building design based on shipping containers, those shipping containers could be around hundreds of years into the future. You know, they're actually relatively rust-resistant steel and um, etc. And then we have things like stainless steel that even into an energy descent future that we might think of as going back to the caves in thousands of years' time, there will still be plenty of stainless steel around to forge tools <laughs> out of. So that creative reuse of what we've already got, taking car engines and making a wood gasifier plant to make electricity, um, you know, because the cars are no longer needed and they're sitting there and they've still got a good engine in them. So I think that's an enormous sort of opportunity uh, into the uh, future. And there are two ones which are underestimated for helping us down the energy staircase of how we get um, reduce our consumption and over time reduce the global population back to what, you know, post-fossil fuels long into the future might be uh, you know, more like a billion people than seven billion people. So I suppose you mean that in the present sort of recycling mega industry that we have, it's collection of a, a certain grade of metal or something and then remanufacturing it to a new product. Well, you're talking about using it again before that stage. Yeah, yeah that rather than the reduce it to its lowest common constituent and then make it back into something else the creative reuse of the already manufactured item you know and a car engine being used as a stationary engine after the cars got a little bit dodgy in various other ways is an excellent example rather than taking that engine block melting it down in a furnace and making something else out of it that's a, a huge waste that's is actually equivalent to taking good food off the table in the restaurant and putting it straight into the compost yeah it's recycling it but you know you could you could have eaten it at the next meal or then you could feed it to the pigs or the chooks and their manure then goes into the compost so you get this cascade of uses all the way down the energy hierarchy rather than throwing the stone down the bottom of the hill after you heroically got it all the way up the top of the energetic hill it's pretty dumb throwing it down the bottom <laughs> But very easy, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Any other things? Well, I think the the uh, redesign of behaviour, human organisation with the global knowledge and consciousness we have, which has partly come through the internet, to make as much use of that to get global understanding, the uh, think globally, act locally, Instead of that just being a sort of a, you know, a, an environmental activist slogan to stop some inappropriate local development, it's having that big picture understanding and being able to connect to all sorts of other examples in the world and then say, but what do we need to do right here? And that's something that people in the past didn't have that potential. Now, we don't know how far into the future something like the internet or its um, spin-offs could survive. One argument is, gee, we should be able to use this as a substitute for transport and for travel. Um, but the other argument is the most recently developed bits of complexity are the first ones to fail. <laughs> you know, so we shouldn't... Exp I don't... I'm not sort of like a, 
an internet utopian sort of, uh, but I think there's definitely a power in the um, knowledge going around the world and the cross-fertilisation of ideas. And we see that even in something as simple as the woofing network where people travel you know, from one organic farm and place to another and get some experience and then they go off to another place and not only are they learning all different people's experiments and their failures as well as their successes, but they're also acting like a an informal carrier pigeon or informal version of the internet taking knowledge, oh, when I was at that place, they did this. You know, so you're actually transferring knowledge as well. So those sort of systems may uh, devolve into some sort of traveller, nomad subculture where people, um, uh, more like um, you know, nomadic peoples in the past, once we don't have the cheap air travel and all those sort of things, we still may have this cultural seeding by people um, uh, moving. That was how the uh, the populists, I think, in the late 1800s in the US had their organisational structure was travelling agitators, essentially working for a, a cooperative end for the very, very poor yeah. farmers on the crop yeah. land sort of system. Yeah, so I think there, there is huge potential in that, uh, that uh, type of um, transfer. And the last one is the rediscovery of tradition, of true tradition, deep tradition, uh, and that ranges from everything uh, of people in places like Italy and Japan where there's still relatively intact remnants of sustainable um, agricultural and cultural uh, systems that people can learn from old people who still have that, that knowledge. And in places like Australia, uh, trying to understand even highly fractured systems like in southern Australia, what happened to Aboriginal land management and the re-piecing together work uh, by people like Bill Gamage, the, the greatest estate on earth, at least having the idea of how did traditional peoples actually manage this huge complexity with the sophistication that we couldn't see or refused to see originally in our obsession about being modern. So certainly in the permaculture world, in countries like Japan and Italy, where there still are those roots, a lot of people see that rediscovery of tradition um, is a big part of of what we need to do. But these are things are all blended together because if if you do it in a fundamentalist sense of, oh, no, that is the traditional system, that won't work because the world is not just changed by fossil fuel today it's changed permanently by the new species the extra fertility we've put into the environment by you know mining the phosphate rock of uh, Nauru and bringing it to Australia where you know everything has changed so there there's some of the the pathways that are signs of a at least a positive or possible future rather than a a view that well we're just humanity's just gonna go over the edge completely in a in a climate and, <laughs> uh, and resource depletion catastrophe. <laughs> so I guess to um, 
to avoid some of these problems, um, going over the edge of the cliff in a screaming mess, um, <laughs> we're going to have to change some fundamental ways we do things and we're going to have to introduce some some very new concepts and methods of doing things and I guess part of the tradition that we've got now is is not being particularly open to those damn greeny hippie things in any case um any any ways of navigating that sort of well the the built-in resistance the first thing is to work where there is the interest and to not try and beat your head against a brick wall to not try and change the very large scale systems because there's a high degree of lock-in as the systems become more committed more addicted there's a structural lock-in that is actually immune to evidence um, and we've seen that really through 30 years of of activism in on the environmental and, and social uh, fronts so there's I, I think that's the uh, first thing is to work with people who are looking for new solutions and often that will be people end up defaulting out of some position of power or profession to say oh what can I do in my own life and that's why a lot of permaculture is actually starting at that grassroots personal um, change the self as a pathway to change society there's some very good systemic arguments for why that is a, an effective pathway to change society. Whereas it's often critiqued that it's, it's not a social change strategy. It's just playing around in a private you know, playpen. <laughs> um, firstly, if you're actually going to model whole systems that are inherently different from the problems we've created... You can't just sort of do a slightly refined version. You've got to go back to first principles. So the way to do that is to start with a simple one. So it's like crawling before you walk, before you run. And the simple whole system that is undeniable to us is the self. And the simplest level of economic organisation that we can understand is the household. Um, So that if we can model what the systems look like at those simpler levels then we have a stepping stone to building the more complex ones but even before we do that when we provide an example of what one person can do or what a household can do then that is an example for someone else to copy that doesn't require the approval of the regulators or the approval of the financiers because people can just do it especially in affluent societies where we have actually still a huge amount of freedom and discretion to do whatever we want. And people don't take that freedom. They see themselves as prisoners and don't take the freedom that they actually have. So empowering individuals to create those models, the pioneers, the innovators who can do it from scratch without peer support. And then the next level is encouraging other people to just copy. Because if a lot of people are in the same situation, they can do the simple design thing of, oh, let's just copy that. looks like it worked. You can't replicate that on a very, very large scale 
because in sustainable systems, every place is different. But the simple systems like the self and the household have a lot of elements that, oh yeah, you can just do that. And then when you get down to the suburbs, for example, oh, look, they're in the same sort of street as we are, facing the same way. They're on the same soil. Oh, look, they did this. Let's just copy that. And so you get this growth of new systems, not by growth of scale, but replication. And then through that learning, a few things happen. Firstly, you start to get the principles and the patterns for saying, well, how do we do this at the next scale up? How do we organise a community economy or community-supported manufacturing modelled on community-supported agriculture? How do we do local currencies, you know, that after we've played around with barter and let systems, how do money systems actually work? We sort of a learning process as we go. And then the last level is where, as people develop these systems, this represents a systemic strike to the centralised corporate government-controlled systems. Now, it doesn't have to get very big to start to be very, very significant to the bottom line of coals, Woolworths and the Australian Tax Office, (laughs) for example. Um, As we build those parallel systems, we actually increase the political leverage to say, well, we're over here developing this. We don't actually need your system. And that means that those with control of that system are likely to be much more willing to negotiate, oh, what do you require in the way of reform to come back into the fold? Whereas at the moment, we have a political discourse that is encouraging people to shout louder to get the elites to pull the levers of power in the right way. And environmentalism is, the climate movement is really proposing a a global movement to shouting louder for less. Not much chance of that having success yes over the years and through coming out of blockading and all sorts of stuff i've come to think of that along with many other forms of uh, asking the big one as begging basically yeah yeah begging whereas if you move from a state of partial autonomy to say well we're doing this over here oh you want us to play in that um bowl over there oh well we've got certain requirements Now, it doesn't mean to say that in a a sort of the sort of stresses and collapses that we're subject to, that we can necessarily expect great and effective real reforms of those centralised systems. They may end up just continuing the same way into a sort of a collapse, like happened with Rome and that actually for a lot of people in the Roman Empire, life got better actually after the empire collapsed because they didn't have the monkey on the back of the, you know, the imperial tax system and everything bleeding everything dry to support the centralised structures. But whether or not that's the case, building that parallel system, uh, I think, from uh, the bottom up um, is really the... I've been articulating recently that this is the political strategy implicit in permaculture, but never been 
part of a big stated, uh, you know, ideology. It's just, oh, you know, like it's, it's more fun, you know, being more self-reliant and growing some food and doing something for yourself and cooperating. In it. It's actually just a better way to live. Uh, but, but there are, you know, social and political consequences that, that just emerge from that. And I suppose that would sort of um, magnify once you get out of the household economy level onto a, a slightly larger level, which is sort of where I'd like to go now. I mean, I think the yeah. permaculture books and there's much literature on the household economy. And um, what I haven't found very much is what sort of structures we could use and a step up from that, say, for an energy company or a health company on a village sort of scale. Mm. Well, I suppose the main uh, development... Uh, or examples within the permaculture movement have been land-based um, collective ownership of land, primarily eco-villages and co-housing that allow the household economy to actually be, a, a, if you like, a larger, bigger um, household in, in, in the case of sort of co-housing, uh, you know, the big collective kitchen, you know, with the maybe one shared meal a, 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 a week or a day like you'd see in Denmark or somewhere like that. Less common in Australia with our very strong individualist uh, culture, but, you know, the small beginnings of those sorts of examples. Um, rural eco-villages like uh, Crystal Waters and here in central Victoria on a small scale, uh, Friars Forest that uh, we're involved in, in, in developing where people own the land and the infrastructure collectively, uh, but have their own um, private allotments. Using a land tenure system, a land ownership structure, which actually already exists in modern society, created for other purposes, basically how do people own apartments in an apartment block and have shared ownership of the lift wells and, and the common infrastructure. That same tenure framework is actually ideally suited to collectively owning land. A lot of my work has been around recognising that the broad acre uh, sustainable land use systems uh, that permaculture envisaged are unlikely to come about through separate freehold title, that you actually have to get the forestry integrated with the grazing, with the beekeeping, with the horticulture. And the way to do that is to have a series of land use rights or licences that is actually working common land, where they're still sort of separate enterprises where, yeah, the grazier doesn't have to know all about the trees or the, the horticulturalist doesn't know, need to know all about the fish farming, but they're actually using the same land in a designed why so that's an example where the sort of the ownership structures the land tenure actually shapes what type of of you know patterns of economy and land use are, uh, are possible now the success in that has been very modest to say the least when you've got such a strongly individualist culture in places like the united states and america in europe a lot more of permaculture activism has been strongly connected to groups like the Global Eco-Village Network, which is a network of um, uh, eco-villages around the world. And it's with those larger organisations, you then have often a lot of association with things like alternative currencies, 
local currencies. And then the next level is, is co-op ownership of actual business and you know, manufacturing models that are, are sometimes tied and connected to the, the land base. You know, the, there's still the exploratory connections of how this might work in things that are not land-based, you know, like manufacturing enterprises and, and businesses. And I think that's, you know, one of the uh, new frontiers between permaculture, the resurgence of the co-ops um, movement, which went into a bit of an abeyance in the the boom of sort of conventional capitalist mould, but has a long lineage, you know, very successful lineage, especially, you know, in the agricultural uh, area too. Yeah, where we can get some cross-fertilisation between those. Mm. Can you just maybe briefly go over a little bit of that cooperative? Um, start with what is a cooperative? Well, in a cooperative... Uh, the, the structures for doing business can be, um, you know, in different economies in Australia, can be a business partnership or a, com- a company that's, you know, uh, limited, um, uh, proprietary limited, or it can be an open uh, company on the on the stock market. But in a way, the the other parallel to the uh, stock market company is the potential of co-ops where they can be quite large structures but the decision making power doesn't rest so much with proportional ownership of shares it's um, more each each uh, uh, co-op member um, has uh, um, a stronger say and where the trading of shares is often limited within the co-op that new owners have got to be approved. So there's some control over who owns, whereas the publicly listed company is is really a cost-minimising, profit-maximising machine, whereas co-ops are a, a complex, high-capacity organisational structure uh, that, that still can work within some ethical or or framework that reflects the interests of the shareholders as whole people rather than just uh, profit maximizers. <laughs> you know, so I think that, um, you know, they went out of fashion as being sort of like, yeah, old-fashioned and that we had the residual of a sort of a, uh, an ossified or sort of uh, degraded form maybe in some of our agricultural co-ops that lost a lot of their sort of original purpose. Um, uh, and we can see new co-ops like, for example, Hepburn uh, Community Wind Farm, which we're shareholders in locally here, is the first community-owned wind farm in Australia. And it quite naturally became a cooperative rather than a company. And within that structure you know, the co-op members um, have a lot more uh, say uh, and there's less trading of shares. It's not so much sort of open and subject to the vagaries of, uh, of market forces, which I think is really important. This exposure, total exposure to market flows of capital is very, very destructive for any long-term investment in anything real. 
because, you know, the money flows out of this one into that one. But, hey, wait a minute, it's taking us five years to get the trees established, you know. The yield doesn't come for... You can't cope with any sort of sustainable development program ranging from renewable energy to building soil or tree crops or a million other things without having stable, relatively stable investment uh, profiles. Whereas the money market system just loves, you know, flick the button and, oh, we're out of coffee and into, um, into copper. <laughs> yeah, they've got uh, computers that do it in microseconds. Yeah, and that is, like, just completely unsustainable. So there is the necessity for more, um, you know, uh, control over that. There's an overlap between that and, of course, the ethical investment field. And ethical investment in the 80s when the first permaculture activists got involved with it was really just about (coughs) avoiding investment in tobacco and arms manufacture. So it was negative ethical investment. Divestment. Yeah, and you see that in the modern, you know, let's get out of coal. Uh, You know, it's a version of of, of that. Whereas in in the 80s under partly under the influence of, of permaculture activists in Australia that set up um, August investments that actually became Australian ethical uh, the focus was on how do we invest in in the things we want to invest in so that's a more difficult problem because there's not a great range of candidates that are out there that meet all the financial criteria and look like they'll make a profit in the current economy and regulatory system and whatever but but that push towards let's invest in the things we actually want to invest in is a much more effective than let's just avoid the bad things because because of those th- problems we were talking about before there's structural problems like a- across most of the um, economy. Most of them are fe- most things that you can invest in are just feeding the problem. So I, I think that ethical investment uh, field is, is um, you know st- strongly related to the the redevelopment of uh, of co-ops. And yeah, the other one is um, is uh, community-owned banks and the ideas that are being pushed around at a higher level of uh, state and government-owned banks. You know, the example in the United States of North Dakota that's got, uh, you know, no debt and, you know, like a really booming economy. And yes, part of that is because it's got oil, but part of it is that it actually has a state-owned bank that still actually works in the public interest. And that may be sort of biting off the, let's try and work at the big level, but... but uh, rebuilding uh, credit unions and uh, you know uh, more local control of finances is part of that. Yeah, right. So um, you know, um, I suppose is uh, what was talked about early in permaculture was uh, the trust sort of form of ownership of businesses and stuff as well. Yeah, the possibility, and this changes, of course, depending on what the laws are, and the laws have changed a lot since those early uh, permaculture works in the 80s. Um, but the the potential of effectively non-profit uh, organisations that can run businesses um, as a, a sort of separate entity uh, 
where there's a, a larger uh, trust that has uh, control of that, but it's um, it's for some sort of uh, larger good. All of the, these structures, of course, have overhead costs in organising them and getting them up to speed and going through the regulatory ropes. So there's an economy of scale that uh, it's a bit like, do we run a business as a partnership or do we make it a company? There's a sort of like a threshold where, you know, is it worthwhile going up to that next level? And when we go up to that next level, we've got to jump up. We can't just gradually climb up. It's a bit like when we grow food at home and then we get good at it and say, let's start selling veggies. And and we can't just know we've got to actually jump to another scale and then, oh, we've got a few customers or now we want to actually sell into some market system. So we need to understand what those thresholds are for our, do we have enough energy and human capital to operate at that, whatever that level uh, is. And that be- has become more of an issue as we see greater regulatory requirements as well. There's a structural aspect where regulations brought in place to reduce bad behaviour, uh, but what it does is tend to make it more difficult for the most creative, innovative operators in any field of activity <laughs> as well. So it stabilises an industry, that regulatory base, and cuts out the worst operators, but it also chops off the most creative uh, because of the, the demands in, in complying with the regulation. So, for example, with Hepburn Wind Cooperative, it was seen as too small almost for a lot of the regulators and the suppliers of turbines, you know, or do you want just two turbines or will we give you an appointment uh, when, you know, companies were buying 100 turbines at a time and then in the community saying, we want to do this project and it involves all this loops and regulatory stuff and, um, and oh, yeah, it requires $12 million. (laughs) that and obviously not all of that was raised in our local community but a significant portion of it was and it, it was was Hepburn Wind too big to be viable from that sort of community point of view or too small from the the large scale system to be viable and a lot of these activities who want to get into the middle ground has been totally vacated all the economic activity has been sucked out of, you know, like all the local hardware shops have all gone and there's Bunnings type of thing and Coles and, and Woolworths. And then there's the farmer's market. And the, like, we're, so we're right down at these very small scale systems and we don't have much in the middle. So growing into that middle space definitely will come from growing up the small scale enterprises and, and pathways and, Things like well-established eco-villages are often the places where this capacity happens. We can see in places like Mullaney in Queensland the crossover between uh, projects like the Crystal Waters eco-village and the co-ops, um, the, the credit unions in, um, in Mullaney that's been a big part of stimulating 
small local enterprise by loaning money to small startup enterprises that where you get this clustering of different parts of this new economic system you start to get these economies of scale or thresholds uh, you know so I, I, I think um, so some of that is uh, a lot of it is to, is to try and build those in places where there's already the household interest there's already you know things like farmers markets and community supported agriculture uh, trying to get those things uh, going to the next level at the same time that those basic things are spreading out through our social landscapes where there's nothing but <laughs> coals and woolies and commuting to work and, and, and <laughs> yeah yeah uh, but when we try and sort of project these larger models into society generally the thresholds and the obstacles are, are too great start simple grow slowly yeah definitely all right well david holmgren thank you very much for uh, giving us your time you're welcome have a good day Thank you.